I'm a card-carrying Basie at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, you stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which airs Wednesday mornings live at 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. at the Wharton School of Business, right here on Locust Walk in beautiful, sometimes sunny Philadelphia. I'm Professor Adi Weiner, co-host, collaborator, and a professor of statistics at the Wharton School of Business, and I'm here today to break down the week's top takeaways. We had two wonderful guests. We had Peter Keating, the senior writer for ESPN, a terrific writer who actually features a lot of analytics in his writing, although he wouldn't call himself an actual statistical analyst. And Chris Bowers, who's not an analyst at all, but uses analysis as the director of player personnel at Northwestern Football. And we had a wonderful interview with both of these gentlemen. And let's begin with our first clip, which is a non-guest clip. It's a discussion about Connecticut women's basketball and their massive ongoing 100-game consecutive game winning streak. The Connecticut women's basketball team has won 100 consecutive games. Now, the statistical point I wanted to bring up about this, and it does sort of relate to the Super Bowl, is at some point, this is going to sound maybe strange to the non-statisticians out there, but I think it's true. At some point, by Connecticut keep winning, it diminishes the record. Now, let me say what I mean by that. If they keep winning, it's clear to me that either they're much greater than everybody else, which is one possibility, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that could also be confounded with maybe we're in a lull in women's basketball and they have got no real competition. So is there a point where winning, continuous winning, actually diminishes our perception of how good you are? Look at how Serena Williams' career is perceived. Do Do we talk about Serena Williams being one of the best tennis players of all time, probably the best women's tennis player of all time, but then we automatically go, but she played in an era Mm -hmm. where she did not face adequate competition. But of course, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing, because did she not face, you know, by dominating that competition, does that competition just not look as good in our eyes? Right. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about is, in some sense, this is why you need, you know, you've studied some of the work, um, I forget the guy's name out of Brigham Young that did bridging eras in sports. Shane Shane Reese. Yeah. To To bridge eras in sports, same thing in testing when I worked at ETS, to say, you know, Cade took one version of the SAT, I took a different one. Well, we need overlapping test items, so we have a way to compare. Or we need outside tests that says, you took also the AP math, I took it, we can compare based on that. That's the beauty of sports, at least. The hope is that there are overlapping eras Mm -hmm. in sports, which allow us to compare. Let me unpack that. Uh, essentially, the the discussion centered around Connecticut women's basketball team having won so many games that as they continue to win, it produces, in our eyes at least, a gap between their ability and everybody else that becomes so large 
that forces us to choose between two possibilities. Either they really are that good, or the competition has just gotten weaker. And Shane essentially compared the uh, our attitudes towards uh, Serena Williams to a similar attitude towards Connecticut. She's so dominant for so long, it's hard for us to recognize fully that she's, she's as good as she is. It becomes more likely in our minds, at least possibly, that she is just playing against inferior competition. Eric segued then into a research question, which allows you to possibly consider overlapping eras to try to adjust for differences in time periods. The idea being that some players play overlapping periods and you can kind of look at their performance and try to make a a statistical adjustment for changing competition, changing eras, changing rules and things of that nature. I have been somewhat of a personal skeptic on that research. I think it requires models that are of questionable validity, but we'll have to save that discussion for a much longer and future time period. Our next clip is from Peter Keating, as I said before, the senior writer from ESPN, and he's talking a little bit about underdogs and high-risk, high-reward situations. We need a quick primer on college basketball season. Maybe your your giant killers is a way into that. Can you tell us what you're predicting right now? Sure. Uh, underdogs, the real basic underlying principle is that underdogs succeed by going high risk, high reward. Right, And good. especially in a win or go home situation. Right. The, the traits associated with that on the court are pressing for turnovers, crashing for offensive boards, shooting lots of threes. You try to maximize okay. your possessions or the value of your possessions. Okay. There are certain teams that go wildly out of their way to do precisely those things, like West Virginia. If you watch West Virginia, they have an amazing combination of hitting the offensive boards, yet applying relentless full-court pressure to try to generate turnovers. And so that makes them very inoculated against teams that can have a great shooting night. And so even though I don't know if they're going to win the national championship, I can tell you no underdog is going to come within 90 feet of them because they just don't give opponents... Um, multiple chances to score, and it's, it's pretty amazing to watch. Peter, uh, can you win this high-risk strategy, which we all nodded yes, that makes a lot of sense. Can you win six games that way, or is this for the underdog to maximize his chances of the Sweet 16 or the Elite 8? Can you really win six games with this high-variance strategy? Being, six being what it takes to, to, win, to, the, win, the title. to win the title. Right, well, like Syracuse, you can, like last year, Syracuse, you can make the Final Four, or VCU is a great example in 2011. To, to actually win the national championship, you do have to have you do have to have some talent, which means you usually have to have some some good shooting ability or a superstar playmaker. But there are teams that have there, there are teams that have combined all of that. There's also teams that successfully ward off these underdogs. You know, teams that are just dominant interior offensive rebounders. Those are successful giants. So. Like, like everything in life, it's, it's a two-by-two two grid, right? There's successful <laughs> and unsuccessful giants and killers. Wow, yeah, that's a, a lot of information there in a two-minute segment. So Peter was describing uh, what he talks about, the ability to make a giant killer. So the way he describes teams in the NCAA tournament as the giants, the really the, the top teams, and the giant killers, the much weaker teams on paper, yet nevertheless play a strategy or, or manifest the ability to take down a giant. And that is done by taking chances, certain play styles that allow you to have the opportunity to really defeat a much better team, not in probability by any st- any stretch, but nevertheless with the possibility. And it's really the only way that a giant killer can have a chance to beat a giant team. 
Now, he actually talked about certain teams, certain giants that have the ability, defensively at least, or, or offensively, to ward off a giant killer. In other words, they just don't have the weaknesses, or maybe their play style is such that they're inoculated against giant killer strategies. And so we kind of try to talk about all those, all those possibilities. Um, my sense is that one of the problems with the NCAA tournament, because it is a um, one loss and you're out, that makes the giant killer far more problematic and important in the way the tournament unfolds because weaker teams, much weaker teams that really have no chance to win, let alone make the Final Four, can knock off those much better teams because of the strategy and, and, the, uh, and the, the elimination style of the tournament. Interesting stuff, certainly worthy of a much longer conversation. Let's hear Peter talk about The Bachelor. This is really a, a fascinating digression for us, and we actually learned uh, some interesting um, tidbits about a show that I had never seen even before, to the great humor of my of my compatriots. Um, but uh, the uh, statistical analysis, while not really genuinely predictive of something which is, I think, to be somewhat scripted, the idea being that the producers are really guiding the way the, the show unfolds, nevertheless, Statistics is a way to reveal information that your brain doesn't necessarily organize. So let's listen to Peter. Now, this race thing is is pretty serious topic, and especially with what's going on in the country these days. And so the fact that they've chosen Rachel Lindsay to be the next Bachelorette and chosen her earlier in the program than usual means that, you know, there is this balance between them trying to shape public opinion and responding to public opinion, and maybe they've decided to, to, to dive into that. Well, I also, I also think that you can be, even in a scripted show, even when producers have tight control of a program, and I think this is an important lesson, even when they use analytics, they may be quite capable of falling behind the audience. Lo and behold, if you have an African-American contestant who's an attractive, funny, smart person who the audience likes, the audience might be telling you they're a lot more Absolutely. willing than your survey has indicated to, to, uh, to have more diversity on the show. Absolutely. To round out your model, you also look at age, height, region, and occupation. You find that... Like, now, these you, are things I can grasp. Young, young <laughs> short, from the Northwest. If you're from the Northeast, you're really not going to go very far. Yes. And, and helping industries, uh, helping jobs. So uh, you, you crunched the numbers and you found that, and this really was to the chagrin of many watchers, you found that your, your favorite was Corinne. The young blonde vixen, Corinne. Is this right? <laughs> I'm, I want a recording of you saying young blonde vixen. Wait, can you say no, this again? I think we all, <laughs> we're all going to be borrowing the tapes so on it's that young, one. This now, is helpful. Like, young is helpful. Short is helpful. I was suppressing all yeah. kinds of young, worse yeah. words. Young is helpful. Short is helpful. Now, here's the North, deal, okay? Did you say north, northwest or yeah. southwest? Northwest. 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 No. northwest is drastically overrepresented among winners. Now, okay, like a nurse from Portland would be ideal. Well, la- short nurse. <laughs> last, last, season's, last season's winner was a flight attendant from Oregon. Right so, now, Peter, right? let me ask you a question. How well can you predict the winner? How well can you predict the rank ordering? Like, how good a model are we talking about? You said you. Were, I assume you said you're in a regression. Like, when you back cast or you look at how well, or even in sample fit, how often are you able to predict the winner? Peter, we, I'm sorry, we didn't we didn't tell you that one of us was going to take this very seriously. Well, we're having a discussion of analytics here. I want to yeah, know how no. well the model works. In sample, it's 100. It's a legitimate question. The thing about villains or hospitality workers wanting them, them sticking around but not winning suggests that whatever the the fit is, it's not totally linear, right? Because you want someone like Corinne around for seven or eight weeks, which means on average it's going to look like she's going to stick around longer, but right. then not good. win. That's a good so, point. So remember, this is just a first stab at a model because there's so many other factors. You know, what names they call first, who gets the first impression rose, all kinds of things that you could feed into this to make it more accurate. So the fit 
is pretty good in terms of rank order. It's pretty loose in terms of, you know, the variation explained overall. But it's pretty good in terms of rank order. Well, there you have it. On tape, Cade referring to the vixen from the short Southwest or Northwest Vixen in the helping industry. And that is sort of the, one of the statistically discovered tool from, um, that uh, Peter Keating used to analyze The Bachelor, and I think that was all very entertaining. Let's go on to our next clip from Chris Bowers, the director of player personnel at Northwestern Football. What they're doing at Northwestern is trying to, trying to manage the pros and cons and the, and the effort and the economy involved in trying to recruit high school players to Northwestern University. And uh, because of limited resources, they can't just give out as many scholarships as they want. Um, they have to manage this process uh, in a more technical way, and they've found some interesting ways to do that. And college football... When you offer a scholarship to a prospect, at least verbally, you can't put it in writing until certain. That's an NCAA rule. But um, when you offer a prospect, is up to the university, up to the school. So those come at different times. It, it would almost be like the Eagles telling somebody, hey, hey you're a first-round draft pick to us, and then the Cowboys do it in March, and the person has a chance to sign. I mean, that, that's insane. You would never – I mean, they try to equate it to the NFL. It's kind of wild. So you have that. And then you have the other side is – that prospect obviously has a choice. So this kind of analytics came back to, um, you know, a, a student who was working in our office, volunteering, just loved it. And so he was reading all the articles and what, and he just was into it. And then he came to school here, a very bright young man, and was working in our office. And, of course, then he went through where are inefficiencies and what am I seeing. And then he sat in a course taught by our university president, uh, Morty Shapiro, who's a tremendous supporter of our program. And in it, Morty got, in, got into a you know, the, the regression analytics of college admissions offices. Wow. That's great. Who they're going to end up getting. Right. Well, this allocate whether that be financial aid dollars, scholarship dollars, how that works. And so Ben says, well, we have more information on these recruits. I mean, we know them well. It's, this isn't college admissions. This is a coach on a phone with a kid once a week. Yep, that's how it goes. College uh, admissions and college recruiting for football have some similarities. I think the college football recruiting is far more um, textured and rich and certainly much more at stake. It's, uh, it's a high-intense, high um, high-stakes game. And there are rules, but there are also lots of freedom. Um, you can't offer a high school players any more money or more scholarship, so it's highly competitive. And what Northwestern is trying to do is trying to use uh, statistics to guide their energy and their effort to make better choices. And I don't think he talked about it on, on our clip, but one of the things that was inspired, inspired a young freshman, I think, taking a class at, at Northwestern to try to build a regression model, which he's now using for the Northwestern football program. And he may be making a company out of it and uh, exploring other options. So here's another clip from uh, Chris Bowers. When you get into sports analytics, there's, you know, you go back to the statement Mark Twain made famous. There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. So you have to put in we know there's data we can trust, but it has to be good data going in. And when you get something as subjective and qualitative as how influential is mom or dad or brother or co- high school coach or former high school teammate who's on our roster, you know, um, you have to have a large enough sample size almost, and you have to have some way to make that quantitative, and that's really hard to do. So what kind of variables and, are in your model? Just give us a sense. Some of the things I can't speak to on how he how he's doing it because it's, his proprietary information, quite frankly, uh, in terms of things. But some of the things are pretty obvious, you'd see. You know, um, let's start with the basic one. Who else has offered them a scholarship? Mm-hmm. That's a huge one. Right. You know? um, and you have to be careful in my shoes not to just, well, 
if school XYZ offer them, we usually win and get the kid. And these schools offer them, we don't. Right. So then you end up kind of spinning your wheels and doing the same thing you've always done, getting the same level of player, beating the same schools. And you don't want to do that. You want to find other ways to influence a decision. Right. And hopefully then change data over time, right? Because it's, you know, it's a living and breathing thing. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. Um, so you yeah, have some of it's who else offered. You have another thing that, that in our situation, and again, this, this could not be true to another school, but in our situation, um, when we offer in relation to other schools is significant. Um, so you, you have a variety of different factors. So you try to get in early as an advantage. Is this right? I would, our data would say if we're earlier, we have a better chance. Well, a lot of data can be used to uh, make forecasts, and I think it's a, a really wonderful open problem, and I'm um, really interested to see what happens with that into the future, although, frankly, I have personal feelings about recruiting high school kids for college. I think it uh, is um, a discipline and sport filled with other factors that really should be considered, and football is a very dangerous game. The students are often trying to make professional careers out of that, and for very few of them is that actually in the cards. I, I do think Northwestern is, a, is a, at least a school where an education is something that most of the football players do end up graduating and collecting an education, but I think in many of the hundreds of college football programs where the pre-professional um, athletes are, are really aspiring to be professionals, they're not necessarily getting. Our last clip is a discussion about the Masters tournaments and predictions in golf. It's really a fascinating discussion because golf, I think, is one of the sports where variance is the highest. In, and in contrast to, say, tennis or basketball, where variance is the lowest um, or lower, uh, golf is the kind of game where even the most highly ranked uh, players are still a long shot to win a, any given tournament. And we have the Masters coming up. Can we can we take a moment on Jordan Spieth? Spieth, there have been four tournaments in 2017, or at least he's played four. Correct. He he's, just won this past week. But he's been in the top ten in every one. Right. He's got two thirds. He just won two other thirds and a nine Correct. in his four tournaments. It's a phenomenal wow. start. He's he's off to a phenomenal start of the year. He's the favorite in the Masters. Uh, he's eight to one at mm -hmm. the moment to win the Masters. Actually, what I was trying to do is this relates actually to your business partner, Rufus Peabody, how far down would you have to go so that you might be 50-50? Like, I'll take those players, and you can have the rest of the field. So here are the top 10 yeah. players. How small a group and who Correct. would they be? Mm -hmm. Here are the top 10 players listed right now in their odds for the Masters. So we have Jordan Spieth at 8-1. to one. We have Jason Day, who's the number one player in the world right now, at 8.5-1. to one. We have Rory McIlroy, hmm. who's also at 8.5-1. to one. Hmm. We have Dustin Johnson. At eleven to one, we have Hideki Matsuyama at twelve to one, hmm. Adam Scott at twenty to one, and Bubba Watson at twenty to one, and Justin yeah, Rose at twenty-one to one. Those are the top ten, right? Yeah, those there. make fifty percent. Right okay, there. so up through where? Up through up Adam, one back, and you're up. You're up, up over. through Adams or Bubba Watson. Yeah. Okay, so if I gave you Jordan Spieth, Jason Day, McElroy, Dustin Johnson, Matsuyama, Scott, and Watson, <laughs> would you take those one, two, three, eight, seven players? The odds are saying I would, I would yes. take a couple less. Than that, just because I assume Vegas is spreading out the yeah, odds their, a little make, bit make more than they really actually more right, to the yeah. extent that it, they reflect true probabilities. The true probabilities are probably clustered a little bit more at the top than the Vegas odds are. So you would take those seven, and you'd give me the other whatever hundred players. Yeah, in the I field. might even take the top six. 
as opposed to those seven. You're just trying to do something that's fair. So you're trying yeah. to get down to objective. I'm trying 50%. to get to the. Yeah, you're trying that's to get right. rid of the vig. Like, like if you tell me that, right. like you know, the top seven and add up to fifty percent of the probability based on Vegas odds, I actually think that you know because you, you, the Vegas you, you, odds yeah. are going to be spread a little disproportionately towards the low odds. No, no, no. They put no? on the higher. No, you got it in reverse because they, they're paying you. They're paying you eight to. If they're paying you eight to one, then they actually think his probability is actually is. Uh, I just is, I, lo- is uh, lower than. I, is, I, I just think that yeah. there, there must be a. T- a a whole ton of players that have like essentially no shot, but that Vegas still puts has to assign some it of their it probability gives them bigger too. probabilities than they have. Right, they're so, eight to one. They so they're taking those probability yeah, away right. from the true probability of the top guys. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. We'll start off with a question that was asked and attempted to be answered. So Eric tried to say, to pose the question, how far down the list from the top you have to go until you've accumulated 50% of the probability? So you start with Jordan Spieth. He's the best player. And you kind of go down the list using Vegas odds as a way of backing out the probability of victory. And then you go until you get to the 50% mark. And one of the things that's been long observed about this with golf in particular is that the any given player has actually an appreciably small probability of winning. So the top players only have about a one in seven chance of winning. And uh, and then it kind of goes quickly down to one in 20. And so what you end up with is if you go down eight or nine down the list, that's when you get to 50% of the probability which leaves 50% of the probability at lower than that. And most of the public, when they look at that information, they think to themselves, here are these top, top players, the best players in the world. They collectively should have more than 50% of the probability of winning, but in fact, they only have about 50%. So you're just as better as well off to bet on the other side. And that's the thing that psychologically, most of the public isn't able to grasp about a, a, a sport like golf, which is highly variable. We actually ended, ended up having a somewhat of a technical discussion about Vegas odds and uh, what they mean. The thing about a Vegas odd, let's say when the Vegas odds are, say, 9 to 1, um, that's an easy calculation because when it, the odds are 9 to 1, Vegas is essentially implying the probability that the team wins or the person wins is 1 in 10. But actual probability of them winning has to be lower than that. And why does it have to be lower than that? Because they want to make money. So if they're trying to make money, they're paying you as if it's one, one in 10, but the actual probability has got to be lower than that. And that was the particular turn of the conversation that Shane and I were, were arguing about. And that's where we were um, kind of stymied there. Shane actually had it backwards. So we were discussing it. Anyway, there's much more to say on the topic, but we're going to conclude our show. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under Podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live every Wednesdays, 8 to 10 Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your stats.